I love the way the First Gen Lounge makes me feel. Because it creates a space where I belong, where we're able to create community. The fact that it's a community. It's a safe place. It also gives me a place to understand different perspectives. The stories of these individuals prescribe transformational perspective. I receive encouragement, enlightenment, empowerment. And also serve as a catalyst to just keep going. Where we're able to be our true selves. I'm allowed to be an unapologetic first gen. And above all else, tell our story. And every episode is unique. I love it. I'm your host, Dr. Eve, and I'd like to welcome you to the First Gen Lounge. Okay, folks, we're back. Another fun Thursday. I keep telling y'all it's your new favorite day of the week. I am joined today in the First Gen Lounge with one of my new friends who's a current PhD student at the University of Pennsylvania, Andrew Martinez. Hey, friend. Hi. How are you? Welcome. I am good. I'm excited to be here to talk to you all and share my experience. Man, I'm so excited to have you. And like I was telling you before we actually got into the recording part of this conversation, I definitely admire, you know, what you're doing. And I'm like, you at UPenn? Oh, my gosh, you're badass. Like, that is, <laughs> you know, again, working at your doctorate at that and then you're working on your doctorate in higher education. So that's really like I love it. That's my background, too. I love it. I love it. So I won't be long. I won't be long with, you know, getting to it because I want to get to the good stuff fast. So if you will, please tell the family, who is Andrew Martinez? Sure. So, you know, that type of question, there's so many ways to answer that. But I think for the purposes of this conversation, I want to talk about how I ended up uh, where I am today. And so I am Andrew Martinez. I grew up in the Bronx, New York City. I have one older brother and uh, my mom and my stepdad. I think my story is interesting how I ended up at Penn and how my uh, like educational journey has been. So uh, I grew up in a low-income household and my mom did everything she can to make sure that me and my brother got the best education experiences that she could provide. So um, she actually worked at a Catholic school for free in order for me and my brother to uh, go to school there um, and not have to pay tuition. And so that entailed three jobs. My mom worked the uh, breakfast program, then she was a pre-K teacher's aide, and then she ran the after-school program. So me and my brother literally lived in our elementary school. We were there from like 5.30 a.m. till about 6 p.m. every day. And the school really became our family. Then I went into high school, uh, Catholic high school in the Bronx, St. Raymond's High School for Boys. And I was able to go there because I had an academic scholarship. And then about junior, senior year, that's when the anxiety comes up of what am I going to do after high school? I knew I was always going to go to college. I really didn't have any other choice. <laughs> My mom made that very clear. And I, I always did well in school. But I didn't see myself as extraordinary student. Um, I didn't really think of myself going far away for college, but my guidance counselor was very encouraging for me to consider all of these schools that I didn't really know of. Uh, so I applied to Cornell University, not knowing it was an Ivy League institution, but knowing that it was a really good school in New York. And I got in through um, the 
HEOP program, Higher Education Opportunity Program. And I think that's when the higher education interest started blooming in my mind because mm-hmm. of the anxiety that came with going to college under this program. So I remember receiving my uh, acceptance letter and it was uh, you know congratulating me for um, my acceptance but it had all these conditions and so i googled what is the higher education opportunity program and i saw all of this information about how new york state is trying to increase the graduation and the enrollment of low-income students in the state so i was like okay this is like an affirmative action type program and then i would look at comments of articles written about it and you know people kind of throw shade at students admitted through this like oh they're taking spots from more deserving students and things like that so I remember entering college like a little uh, I would say like not confident in myself thinking like hmm I'm here because of this program but my SAT scores weren't good enough my high school curriculum mm. wasn't good enough and it definitely affected me in college I mean I graduated and I was able to you know get a master's at Penn and then come back for a PhD but those first two years um, I got more C's than A's I don't I didn't really get many A's during undergrad uh, but I had a lot of like growth as a person and, and self-confidence I started realizing that the only thing holding me back from succeeding in college were the thoughts that I was thinking everyone else had about me. So I wasn't necessarily being told I wasn't good enough, but I mm-hmm. believed that because of what I was reading and because of microaggressions and things like that. Uh, and it wasn't until I really spoke to one of my mentors, who was a uh, counselor for that program, who said, you have to stop looking at yourself as an exception and realize that you're exceptional. Mm-hmm. And those words just like stuck with me. And I was like, wow, that's just like an amazing way to think of it and I didn't have the language in my mind but now I understand that my experiences were really shaped by the way that I framed everything that was happening to me so I started learning like okay I need to shift the way I frame things and you know look at more positive things stop focusing on the negative stop focusing on the failure instead use that failure to see what you need to work on Uh, so once that change started happening, rather than letting opportunities like come by me, I started seeking them out. So I started talking to people about their careers in higher ed, and I decided like, okay, this is something I want to do. I want to be, I want to be that person who mm-hmm. tells the student that they're exceptional and not the exception. And so I applied a pen for my master's. Um, it was a short nine-month intense program, and. Um, during that time was the first time I was able to pursue research. So I was struggling academically so much at Cornell that I didn't really take advantage of research opportunities. I was just trying to pass. <laughs> I was working my work-study job and just catching up office hours, trying to get B's and A's to help my GPA. 
So once mm-hmm. I got into my master's program, it's like, okay, I need to, I need to see if this scholarly life is something that I can do. So I took advantage of some research opportunities at Penn, and I fell in love with it. I got to interview Black and Latino men in New York City urban schools to understand what they attribute their success to. I worked with Dr. Sean Harper and his anti-deficit approach research. Oh, nice. So okay. instead of focusing on that failure that you know, everyone likes to emphasize and report on the news. We talk to the high achieving men and see how do they succeed despite all of the challenges and barriers that they face. So that was really fulfilling work. And it showed me that like research can be fun and how I can like meet myself through interviewing other people. So that planted the seed of uh, wanting to get a PhD and then I returned to Cornell to work with the student groups that I was a part of as an assistant dean, knowing that I would work there for two or three years to get some professional experience before Mm -hmm. returning back to Penn. And um, the opportunity, it was was just too good to be true. Um, After my third year at Cornell, I was very excited about applying to PhD programs. And then my advisor, Mary Beth Gass, she had just announced that she got a grant from the Mellon Foundation to support a research project following students at Hispanic serving institutions across the nation, their journey into the professoriate. So these students mm. want to be professors in the humanities, but they need to get into grad school first. So the program is all about providing them with social and academic support to prepare them from graduate school and then support them through graduate school into the academy. So I was like, I need to work on this project. So mm. I really did all I did, all I do to prepare a strong application. I leveraged my networks. I reconnected with people to show them how interested I was in the project. And now I'm here as a third-year PhD student just finishing meeting with the second cohort of students involved in that program. And I couldn't be any more happier. Mm. I'm in awe. <laughs> like, <laughs> wow. Let me let me go back for a second because you yep. applied to and got accepted to Cornell University and did not know it was Cornell University, like seriously? (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Like that says a lot about who you are and how you are and the potential that you had from the jump. Because I would look at a school like Cornell and say, I'm good. (laughs) Because (laughs) no way, like you said, you know it was a good school, but my, you have really just evolved by taking chances on yourself. Would you say that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think uh, one of my friends now from my grad program, she always says, close mouth, don't get fed. And when my uh, guidance counselor like took that special interest in me uh, to talk to me about some of my schools and, and what schools he thinks I should add to my list, mm-hmm. I, I was just like, wait, he's a guidance counselor. He knows what he's doing. So if he's encouraging me to apply here, maybe I should just apply. And because of uh, the, the program I was in in high school, because I was a high achiever, they would help with like college applications and I learned about mm-hmm. fee waivers. So I said, the risk is not that high. I'm not paying for these applications. Mm-hmm. And the worst thing that can happen is they say no. And I was true. pretty confident that I can get into the CUNY or SUNY system within New York. So it was really all the other schools outside of that that were chances that I wasn't sure that I can accomplish. But I said, why not? I have all mm. the support. Let me just throw my name in the ring. Mm-hmm. And I definitely got a lot of rejection letters. I, I applied to other 
school that I didn't know were Ivy Leagues because in my head, only Harvard was an Ivy League. <laughs> uh, but I couldn't have made a better choice. I was still in New York, New York, even though it was about six hours away from home. Wow. My mom okay. wasn't too happy about that, but <laughs> I think it was a good experience for me to see, one, that New York is more than just the city, <laughs> and two, going away from home, because um, I have a brother who's two years older than me. He went to college, but he commuted, so mm -hmm. it was a very different experience, and I think that oh, yeah. When I came back from my first semester and he was a junior, the amount of growth my mom recognized in me from being away for a semester showed me like, wow, like, you know, going away to college is definitely a completely okay. different experience. And especially for first generation students when, you know, the, you really have no idea what you're getting into unless you have friends who are a little older who can kind of tell you what's going to happen when you move. Mm. So let me ask you a question. Considering all of your experiences from, again, that initial leap of, of grand faith and applying to these Ivy League schools, all the way up to becoming an assistant dean of students at Cornell, because that's a pretty big role to have, especially at a private Ivy League institution. Um, is there anything along that path that you wish somebody would have told you about anything professional or about life or just anything that you were like, man, I wish somebody would have told me this. I'm feeling kind of crazy. Like, why did they say something? <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess the one that immediately comes to mind is I guess like that bureaucracy is everywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that, you know, as a student, I, I wouldn't consider myself an activist because I definitely wasn't in the front lines of like demanding more from the university and whatnot, but I would support those types of initiatives. And, and really my engagement in student organization was pivotal in me wanting to pursue a career in higher education. So I think that when I was in college, I had this idea of how college works. And then I went to graduate school to study how college works. And then I <laughs> went on to work at a college and there was a major disconnect. Like this is not how really... college works. <laughs> yeah. um, you don't really get a sense of the bureaucracy until you're in it. Um, yep. So I, and I love Cornell. I always love my alma mater. But I did get a little tainted side of it as an administrator, realizing that a lot of the progress students want and administrators want is often like hard to accomplish because of these like traditions and legacies and money associated with like alumni. It's, it's kind of icky, you know? It's, it's not a nice feeling to know that you're like part of that system. But even beyond just like working in the higher education realm, I think that throughout my journey, I wish I knew that it was okay to ask for help. I think because I felt lucky, like I, I was always getting opportunities, you know, I was getting accepted at these schools that it's really hard to get into. I thought that meant that I'm smart, I shouldn't need help. That like there isn't really help for me because people who come here are perfect. So I, a lot of my struggles throughout that whole time was because I didn't feel like I had a place to ask for help. I was just like, well, they 
already invested all of this on me, so I need to figure this out. And I mean, I learned that definitely in undergrad, but it was something that I wish that I had known like day one of freshman year or day one of the pre-summer that I spent at Cornell to catch up with the normal applicants, they would say. Yeah, I think me hesitating to ask for help is what caused so much of my anxiety and my failure, honestly, in the first couple of months. But then I also reflect, and because of those experiences, that's why I'm doing what I'm doing now. So it's one of those things I, I wish I knew about it so I could have avoided all that stress, but I'm also grateful for it because it's what made me passionate about what I do now. So out of curiosity, and assuming that you, like you said, you have learned to ask for help, what was it that helped you or what happened that changed your perspective on being able to ask for help? Because I think that's, I don't want to say common, but just considering the conversation I've had with several of us first gens, we have to be mm -hmm. independent because that's what we know to be. So I, I love to hear that this is a thing, but also figuring out how people are navigating that space. So yeah, again for you, how did you start to ask for help or how did you learn how to ask? Yeah, I think when I think about why I was so hesitant, I think it's really just the way I was accustomed of being like at home and just like my family's like, I guess culturally we're just like, we can do it, let's not ask for help. You know, we, we if we, you absolutely can't do something then. And when I got to Cornell, I was still in that like frame of thought that like, I'm here for a reason. Like they must have accepted me because they believe I can do it. So I should be able to do this. I don't need help. And I think it was that mentor I mentioned earlier who I would have to meet with him at least once a month as part of the condition of that program I was in. He saw me struggle um, and he had access to my grades. So one thing that I often write about is that my family didn't know at all that I was struggling in college because I was too embarrassed to let them know. And unlike high school, you know, they don't get a report card or they don't get contacted by the administration. So whenever I would come home, you know, they would ask me how Cornell, how are classes, and I wouldn't lie, but I wouldn't say I'm failing. I would say, oh, it's hard, but I'm, I'm managing, you know? So they didn't have a sense of how much of a failure I thought I was and how that was affecting me. And at one point, I did break down to my counselor saying that, like, I feel like a fraud at Cornell and I feel like a fraud at home. Because when I talk about Cornell, I sometimes I'm seen as uppity or, oh, you're so smart when they don't know how much I'm struggling. And then when I'm at Cornell, I'm trying to like fake it and, and, and not let people see how much I'm struggling. So I think, you know, being vulnerable in front of someone who I couldn't lie to helped me talk about it in productive ways and think about how to make my situation better. And I think once I started doing that, and I definitely have friends who are also in the same like struggle as me, other students in that particular program, and some students who were older than us, so they were like our peer mentors. You know, I had a lot of people that I can relate to that helped me through that, but it really was me breaking down and realizing that a lot of the frustration I had was that I really couldn't be my like authentic self at home and at Cornell. They were just two separate identities. I really want to thank you 
because of your vulnerability and your transparency. Like, I love that you're just putting it out, out on the table right now and saying a lot of things that people won't say because mm -hmm. what you're saying is real and it's so resonating. And I'm like, man, this is why I do this show because we're all in this together. And I can't yeah. recall so many times myself, even now as a professional, as an entrepreneur, not asking for help or not wanting to because I got this, I'm strong, I'm tough, I've survived. And just mm -hmm. a reminder, even in this moment, to say it's cool. Like, it's cool to not have it all together. And I think that where we're from, we're even so used to our parents appearing to have it all together when they don't. Mm -hmm. You know, when they're probably even struggling to take care of us or just to provide, but they put on this, I'm good, you're never going to see me break. So it's a kind of a pass down thing as well. But to be open enough to say, break down the walls and show your face to the right people because that's how you keep going. So thank you so very much for for that transparency because I'm pretty yeah. sure that's not something that you just, you know, just, you know, oh, guys, let, let me tell you, this is just one of those, man, this is so needed. Mm -hmm. um, gosh, it's so needed. Yeah. So considering mm -hmm. all the things that you have experienced to this point, even in learning to be more confident who you are and trusting the journey, but just really growing because it sounds like there's been so much growth. What would you say are some of the things that have helped you to be successful thus far? So I think one is what you just like mentioned is just me learning to be more vulnerable and open and, and sharing, you know, my experiences to the right people. I definitely have a strong network of support of fellow graduate students, professors like my advisor, my former supervisor at Cornell. I still have a strong group of people that I can go to and just vent and, and not feel like I'm being judged and know that I'm going to get some great advice. Or sometimes they don't have any advice for me, but they just listen and, and sometimes that's all you need just to feel heard and, and, and reassured that like what you're experiencing is normal and okay. And then I think about the students that I have worked with through my program and as a staff member at Cornell. I think social media, as much as it can prohibit you from, I guess, being your best self, sometimes you can compare yourself to others or, or uh, you can see just a lot of negative things online that can bring you down. Like that's very real and that does happen. But I think that um, my experience with social media has been more positive seeing the students that I've worked with succeed or hearing from them or seeing them comment my pictures or my posts and saying, I read your article, this is amazing. And, you know, that keeps me motivated. I'm like, yes, this is exactly why I'm doing this. So I think social media has been powerful in that way and helping me keep going and, and persisting. And then I just think about my family. I honestly think that that struggle that I talked about earlier, feeling like I couldn't explain what I was experiencing to them because of this, like, you know, first-gen dichotomy of, like, no one will understand me if they haven't been going through it. That's what I really want to research. So I think that my family has been a major source of motivation for me to continue because I still don't think I'm there yet. I mean, they definitely have more insight on what I'm doing, and I try my best to explain like my research and you know why I have to travel so much and what's an IRB and why that can be really frustrating and things like that. Uh, but it's still like a foreign language to them, 
So for me, my journey through the doctorate right now is figuring out a way to make this type of experiences readily easy to understand for parents and, and family members. Because what I've noticed is that my experiences aren't singular. Like a lot of the students that I am interviewing in this project talk about Yes, my family supports me, but they don't understand what I do. Or they don't understand that I'm not going to be a medical doctor by getting a doctorate. <laughs> you know, things like that. So I think it's knowing that the work I want to pursue is important work and that it can really help others like me keeps me going. And then having, you know, supportive family and friends to go to and just the people that I inspire or the people who've inspired me staying updated with what I do and encouraging me to push on. Touched on a little bit. You talked about your research a little bit, especially as you are a Latino. And mm -hmm. I don't want to not, you know, touch on that a bit because that is such a part of who you are. And what I love about it is you're doing something to highlight the experience of individuals like yourself in How's that going for you thus far? And how do you hope to change the future of education by what you do? Sure. So I think that another major inspiration of me pursuing this line of work and my research is my, my identity development as a Latino in college. So I grew up in New York City. I grew up in the Bronx. Like my neighborhood was predominantly Puerto Rican and Dominican. I'm Puerto Rican and I never really thought of myself as a Latino. Like I was just like Puerto Rican. And then I went to Cornell and there aren't that many Puerto Ricans. <laughs> uh, but there was a strong Latino community. So I was just like, hmm, what is this word? What is Latino? What does that mean? So I would take Latino studies courses and intro to Latino studies and I kind of learned about like the development of the word Latino and, and, and like why it's important to have like this subset of the population, like Hispanic, Latino, whatever term you want to use, it was really a way to galvanize amongst the different communities to, you know, get their voices heard and have government um, recognize them as like a constituency. And that's how I felt like it developed at Cornell too. Like you had a small population of like Puerto Ricans and Dominicans, you had a small population of Mexicans, and then you had also like international and American students and whatnot. So I recognized that and I started involving myself in like pan-ethnic Latino student organizations to learn more about the other cultures within Latinidad. I joined a Latin fraternity, Lambda Data 5, and it really introduced me to, like, the current state of, like, Latinos in the country. So, I mean, I had a very naive, basic understanding, like, okay, Latinos are minorities, so basically that means we're most likely to be low income, most likely to, you know, experience racism and all the isms and whatnot. But I didn't really understand the like economic and educational statistics behind it like you know how underrepresented we are in you know in the government or in education and whatnot so when you see those and you realize hey I'm one of those people it's it's jarring so I think that was also one thing that at first made me nervous like oh my god could I do this there's only 4.1 percent of all professors are Latino that's very small but then it's also like I need to do this because it's only four percent. So it's definitely something that is always on my mind and, and that's exactly why I wanted to come to Penn because the project that I'm working on, the goal is literally to diversify the professoriate with more Latinos in the humanity. So we looked at all these statistics, we saw how 
underrepresented they were, despite being the largest ethnic minority group in the nation. And it's like something's wrong there. <laughs> what you what you see mostly in the media or in research is like they're underprepared. But really, are we or are opportunities just not afforded to that population? So it's definitely jarring, and I think that's also what motivates me to not only want to continue this line of research, but also make changes so that it isn't as jarring as it is. You know, this conversation and all of that, I'm listening and piecing it all together. And you are very fitting of what myself and brothers have talked about previously. But you are the, the, the very example of being who you needed. And I'm loving how every single thing in your journey has shaped you. Because, like you said, continue to be this person that you are and the person that you will be. Even from the perspective of wanting to research around Latinos in higher education and helping them to be and to thrive beyond the full degree. Finding purpose in the work that you're finding something meaningful. If you go back and think about who you were, as you told me earlier, you used to apply to Cornell and then you kind of went from there. But man, if you could be who you needed for that 18, 19 year old self, amazing how you are thriving and even your research are so intentional. I, I am like such a fan right now. Like this is incredible because <laughs> um, it, it so aligns and, and even the idea of recognizing at some point this does matter. That's kind of how I thought about the first gen work. Like, oh, okay, mm-hmm. yeah, it's nothing, no big deal. But I'm like, wait a minute, we're special. <laughs> there are only yeah. 11% of us that actually graduate from four-year institution. So think, mm-hmm. think that, and then if that's 11%, the whole picture, I'm like, I need to find the book, yeah. find out how many Latinos, because if it's only 4%, I was just looking at this data. I think 33.84 or 38.34. One of those numbers. 30, let's just say around 35% of first gen students are Latinos. So they make up a big portion of that. Oh, wow. So 30, 30%, 34, 35%, just say I have 100. That's, yeah. that's like, wow. Okay. So then think, so of that, that we have to do the math. You know, I know we, we kind of, <laughs> I'm not a quant scholar. No, so. no, no, no. Okay. Quant of all this. <laughs> yeah. But even just like figure, figure from the perspective of 11%, so out of that 11%, what majority, you know, are Latinos, but then again, to have that voice, to be able to yeah. say I'm here and I matter and my voice matters and y'all need to know it. You know, I, I think that, that's mm-hmm. love. I think that's love. Yeah. Man. And I think it's important to have these types of conversations that we're having with them, you know, as you're like appreciating my time and I'm like, oh my God, I'm so happy that this conversation is happening. I'm also thinking about how these connections you're making, I don't even realize until I'm asked questions. So the fact that you're creating this like venue to mm-hmm. tease out these experiences and show your guests that like, hey, look how you can think about your story and see how it has shaped you as a person. And I know my experiences have influence my decision to um, pursue what I'm doing but you know as I'm explaining to you my journey I'm seeing all the connections and I'm like wow <laughs> what like again wow and then you'll have to go back and listen to the play and actually like man I didn't even realize that because I do that all the time <laughs> like things that you even like you said you learn about yourself through interviewing and I think that's one of the beauties of the work that we do uh, you know being researchers and being people who love the conversation and tell us stories man, so we are really we're, we're running out of time so mm. I want to ask you the question that you know I just have to ask everybody because it's so important at least I think it is but the one thought that you want to leave us with the one thing you want to put in what would that be mm. good question I really have 
have to take it back to that one piece of advice that really changed my trajectory. And it's that like, you know, so often we think about why we aren't good enough or we think that we get, you know, these amazing opportunities or these amazing chances out of luck. And I do think that luck is a part of it all, but I think that it's very important for everyone to understand that they have something to contribute. And, you know, it's back to that quote, like, you're not the exception, you're exceptional. We all have a purpose, and sometimes it takes someone a little bit longer to figure it out. And I was fortunate to figure it out, I guess, throughout my college experience. I don't really think I figured it out entirely yet, but I know I'm on the right track because I'm passionate about what I'm doing. And even though sometimes, you know, I'm exhausted, I'm tired, I'm like, oh, I don't want to read another book. I don't want to write another literature review. But at the end of the day, it's pushing me towards closer to my goal. And it does make me happy. So I think my, my like, you know, last thought that I want people to um, resonate with is to consider yourself exceptional, not the exception. Thank you so much, Andrew, for your time, for your wisdom, for your encouragement, for your authenticity. Thank you for all of those things and so much more. I'm sure there'll be people who are going to want to find you. And I actually have made some really awesome friends who are also first-gen and have some really good platforms. So where could the people who are listening, where can they find you? In the social media space or or the internet, if you want to be found now. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm on all the social media accounts. Um, So my Twitter and Instagram handle are the same. They're at Drudel, D-R-E-W-T-L-E. Quick story about that. My name is Andrew, clearly. And... Everyone knows that I love turtles. Turtles are my absolute <laughs> favorite animal. And I have a really old turtle. She's about 20 years old. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, her name is Pebbles. But anyway, I so I was Greek in undergrad. So my Twitter and Instagram handle was my, like, Greek name. So when I went into graduate school, I was like, okay, this is not okay. This is very undergraddy. Like, I love my, <laughs> I love being Greek and whatnot, but that's not going to be my name for social media accounts. So I asked my friends, what should my handle be and they're like Drudel. So it takes the Drew from Andrew and the ending of the word turtle. So you need to find that works. <laughs> yeah. And then I said maybe I don't know, but maybe once I do get the D maybe I'll just capitalize the D and then have the dot after the R. So it's like doctor but still Drudel. <laughs> Ah, clever, clever. <laughs> we'll see. Well, yeah, no, we'll see. We'll see. Just, just try it out. Actually, yeah. see how you like it, and then just turn it back. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, right. But thank you so much, so so much again for your time. Looking forward to all the great things you do. Good luck with this PhD. Like, thank you. Finished. Thank you. You're so very welcome. And if you need anything, always feel free to reach out. Till the next time, friends. All right. Thanks.